are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. It is great to see everyone here. Those of you who are new, welcome to Shining Star Community Church. We are the EM, that's the English Ministry side. And so it's just a privilege and blessing to be able to stand before you here today. And, and uh, we would love to get to know you a little bit more. And um, so join us downstairs. All right. Um, I want to read one verse from verse 14 of the passage that we just read. Just one more time. Uh, the sermon really centers itself around this. So if you have it, uh, that's fine. If you, if you don't, that's fine too. But I'm going to read it. But far be it from me to boast. This is verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Amen. Amen. I wish to go over with you just the week, not my week, but the Passion Week. Last Sunday was the day that Jesus entered triumphantly into Jerusalem. People were shouting wonderful praises, waving palm branches, which was a declaration, a public declaration that, wow, someone royal, someone good, someone, a war hero, a king is entering the town. So they're waving, they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. So not only is he just king, but they're also recognizing that he's Messiah, that he's Savior. Hosanna on the highest. Hosanna, the, the son of King David, is coming. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, hooray to the king of kings. Salvation belongs to the king. The Lord saves. People are shouting Hosanna. All that is all wrapped up in that one word and phrase, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And that was Sunday. What a great introduction. Next day, Monday, Jesus, he leaves Bethany and he sees, and he's a little hungry. So he sees up ahead what he thought was a fig tree full of leaves. So as he gets closer, he realizes it's just a tree with leaves, but with no fruit, with no fig. So there he goes and curses the tree for giving off the impression that it had fruits because of the leaves, but in actuality did not. In fact, the tree was nothing but just a dead tree. And so he cursed it. Then later on that same day, Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem for their unbelief because Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows that, that the triumphant entry and the hooray and the hosanna, that stuff is done. It was yesterday. He knows that there's no more of that. So he weeps. Then he goes to the temple court and he sees that people, the merchants, are ripping people off. The Gentile area where people are supposed to worship. You know what, sir? Feces and dung from the livestock animals and these people coming from foreign countries and they have to do currency exchange. They don't know how much the dollar is to their currency. So they get ripped off by those merchants. And Jesus is angry, righteous anger. And he sweeps everyone out for the desecration of the worship area. He then leaves back to Bethany. That was Monday. The next day, Tuesday, Jesus, he looks and his disciples goes, hey, hey, Jesus, it's that tree, that tree that you curse. And so he finds a withered fig tree and he uses that to teach a powerful lesson on faith. Now, faith can do anything. It can move mountains. He goes on and speaks about the woes and the judgment upon his enemies because God is not saying, Jesus is saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm done for. The enemy have, no, no, he's saying, Guys, this is just the beginning. This is what's going to happen to them. God is going to judge them. And so he leaves the city and he teaches the Olivet Discourse. This is where Jesus speaks to his people about an extended teaching on the end times. 
at the Mount of Olives. That was Tuesday. But then the next day, there's no actual record of anything Jesus did. But we know that Wednesday was the day before Passover. And so on that day, the disciples and the people that are celebrating with him were all preparing a massive feast baking and, and cooking and, and roasting and doing all that stuff. And, and maybe, quite possibly, even that late that night, Wednesday night, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, the one who was the betrayer, the one who was the traitor, will go into the darkness of the night, sneak out, and make this deal with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders, with the Sanhedrin, and say, hey, I will give you the man you are looking for if you give me some money. So for 30 pieces of silver, they make that exchange, perhaps late Wednesday night into early Thursday morning. But then Thursday comes, and it's the Passover day. The Passover supper is a huge feast, and there Jesus is dining with his disciples, and they're all worshiping and celebrating, enjoying this customary day, this traditional day. And Jesus takes that time to bend down, get on his knees, take off his robe, tie around his waist, and wash the dirty, disgusting, filthy feet of his disciples, even the betrayer himself, Judas, to teach them about humility, to teach them about grace, to teach them about the love of God. And so there was the inauguration of the first sacrament, the Lord's Supper. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. And we know Christ only ordained two ordinances, the Lord's Supper and the believer's baptism. And after that moment, Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane after the Lord's Supper, and he prays, and he prays because he knows what's happening the next day. And he's crying out to God, saying, God, take this cup from me if it is your will. And he is in agony, and he is crying, and he is in so much torment and so much stress because the weight of all the sins of the world, past, present, future, is upon him. And there he was sweating droplets of blood, crying out to his only rescuer, his only redeemer, God the Father, Lord, be with me. And it is that moment when Judas and the mob appear. They confront Jesus. The disciples say, whoa, what is this? And Judas tells the people, his, his mob, the, the people he struck a deal with, hey, the guy I kiss. This is that night, remember. The guy I kiss, the guy I mark, that is him. That is the one you want, so get him. So Judas finds Jesus. Jesus, knowing full well what was happening, allowed this traitor, this betrayer, to come into his presence and allowed himself to get kissed by Judas. Jesus is betrayed this night. They take away Peter, uh, they take away Jesus, and Peter, Jesus' closest disciple, begins his betrayal of the man he said, I will do anything for you. The next day, Friday, our Jesus was tormented and had to go through a series of trials and trials and trials. And they did this shrouded in darkness. Why? Because everything about it was illegal. So they did it early in the morning. The first trial, high priest Annas accuses and he holds on to Jesus so that the council of the Sanhedrin can gather and get together. Then there's a second trial right after. And it was before the council, before the Sanhedrin. And there the entire council says, Jesus, you are a blasphemer. You have, you have robbed us. You have done so much wrong. You are guilty of treason, of riot, of inciting, of all that stuff. And so therefore, Jesus stood condemned before the council. That was the second trial. But then there was a third trial. 
And during that time, Peter, the one big advocate of Christ, the one who's supposed to go and defend and protect him, and says, no, Lord, I will do anything for you. There he is. And denies Christ for the third time. And then the council's condemnation of Jesus is repeated. And you're thinking that must be it, but no. Not only the third, there was fourth trial. And Jesus, he stands before Pilate. But that should be done, that should be over. No, there was another one. There was a fifth trial where they send Jesus over and he stands before Herod. Certainly that has to be the last one. No, our Jesus had to go through six trials. The sixth trial, Jesus stood again back to Pilate. And Pilate says, I don't know. If, look, this man seems innocent to me. This seems like just like a religious squabble between you and the Jewish sect. I don't care about this, but you know what? For the sake of popularity, for the sake of I don't want this to get any bigger than it already is, then I will go ahead and you know what? You can have him. Do what you want with him. You want to crucify him? Go ahead. I wash my hands of this. And so Jesus gets taken away to get beat, whipped, scourged. And the city chants, no longer Hosanna, Hosanna, but crucify, crucify, crucify him. And Jesus is finally turned over to be crucified. The Roman soldiers, they get him, they beat him, they mock him, they humiliate him, they spit upon him, they do everything. Then they get a crown of thorns and say, oh, you are the king of Jews, are you? Here, here is your crown. And they got the crown of thorns and smashed it into his scalp. One and a half inch long thorns embedded close to his eyes and his face. And it is at that moment that Judas wrought with guilt, says, I can't do this. What, did, what have I done? And he goes and he hangs himself, the betrayer, the one who was so intimate with Christ for three years, just like the other 11, and yet he died lost, died unforgiven, died in disbelief and unbelief. So the crucifixion begins around 9 a.m., and then by 3 p.m., six hours later, there Christ is hanging up on that cross, beaten, bloody, open, flesh filleted, blood dripping down. At 3 p.m., the God-man Jesus dies. But at the moment of his death, something supernatural occurred. Something hard to describe and hard to fathom. This is something that doesn't just happen. It is not geographic. It is not a weather thing. Something happened. You see, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, there was a veil that, that separated God, the presence of God, and from the rest of the world. And that veil was torn. This massive veil that was about this thick was torn in two. And the Holy of Holies was unleashed into the world. But more than that, all of a sudden, these nearby graves, graves were opened up. And these people they were, that were dead for years and years and years stood up and walked out and into the city, a precursor to the great resurrection. 
And so the Romans, the guards, they're thinking, what is going on here? This is, I, I can't explain this. What am I supposed to do? And they say, quick, just, just make sure he's dead. Let's get out of this right now. So they got, they got a spear, and they jabbed the side of Jesus to make sure that he was done, done once and for all. And as they jabbed him, as they speared him inside, blood and water came rushing out. The Passover lamb of God was slain. Jesus was brought down, buried by sunset. The end of Friday. Saturday, what could you think if you followed him? What could you think if you followed him throughout his entire ministry, seeing the amazing miracles, seeing the thousands of people being fed, seeing, the, seeing Christ walk on water, what were you supposed to think if you were his disciples? Was all this in vain? What was I supposed to think? They were scared. Close the doors. Make sure no one else finds us because they'll associate with us and they'll do to us what they did to Christ, you see? It was a solitary Saturday for them. A day filled with fear, a day filled with confusion. What are we supposed to do with our lives now? They were hopeless. But then Sunday came. The tomb is empty. What? The tomb is empty. There's no body. Jesus isn't there. The tomb is empty. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hosanna. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Now, the l religious leaders, they didn't like this one bit. No, they didn't like this one bit because, oh, as bad as it was before when Christ was alive, if, if, this is, if Christ really did rise from the dead or something happened, no, 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 then this, this, will, this will just wreak even more havoc. No, so in verse, chapter 20, verse 11 through 15, in the book of Matthew, it says some of the guards went to the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. And after the chief priests assembled with the elders, they devised a plan, it says here, to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, say this, his disciples came by night, stole him away while you were asleep. And if this by any chance comes to the governor's ears, it's okay. We will satisfy him and we'll keep you out of trouble. So tell this to the people in case they're curious because we don't want this news of what really happened to come out. There was a Christian famous apologist and theologian named Justin Martyr from the 100-165 A.D. And he said this, even in the second century, about 100 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, he said that story of Jesus' body stolen by his disciples while the Roman guards were asleep was still desperately being circulated around. Desperately circulated, he says. You see, the Roman guards were under death if they fell asleep or neglected to do their duties. 
The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. There is no other explanation. How can a fearful group of disciples that have run away and scattered to all four corners for fear that they too may get caught? Why in the world would they come back in the middle of the night in front of imperial Roman guards who are weapon, who have weapons and this massive sealed tomb that takes an entire group of people to try to roll away and yet somehow they, they knock out the soldiers, they roll the tomb over, they pick up the body of Christ and they disappear? Is, is that how it goes? Church, Jesus is alive. You, know, you trace any other religious leader and you'll find them to be in their grave. Millions and billions of people follow the ones who can't even save themselves. Look, we don't follow Peter. We don't follow the Pope. We don't follow Moses. We don't follow Muhammad. We don't follow Buddha. Why? Because as influential as they are, as powerful and historically significant as they were, they're all dead. Their bodies are in graves, and all they can do is suffer the cross, but they can't defeat the cross. All they can do is be buried under the cross, but only Christ can and has overcome the cross. Only Jesus can declare he is salvation. I'll say again, Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the enemy thought that the cross would be the instrument of death to Jesus, that the, it would be a final blow that would ruin all of Jesus' great work and plan and life, all stuff that he lived and died for, that the cross would be the tool to kill the Son of God and destroy and ruin and mess up God's plan of redemption. And yet we read here, Paul says, No. You think that's what the cross is for? No. I boast in the cross. The cross is good. You have no idea. Today we need to know this one thing. The world saw the cross as ugly, horrible, disgusting, vile, inhumane. But Paul, he saw the cross of Christ as one of pride and one of praise. And today, we worship not the cross, but we worship Jesus Christ who hung upon that cross. The cross for the Christian doesn't mean death anymore. It doesn't mean uncertainty anymore. No, today, we find glory in the cross. We find that Jesus who rose from the grave defeated sin. Amen. He defeated death, amen, and he turned the death-giving cross into a life-giving cross. Amen. Jesus had to die to give life. The enemy used the cross to take God away from us. Oh, he forgot something. He forgot that the cross actually brings us closer to God. Without the cross, we would never know what it meant to be saved and be free from the penalty of sin. We would never know the freedom from the power of sin. You see, all our confessing, all our repentance, all our fears and faith and tears that we have cried, all the conviction remorse would be absolutely meaningless without the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there is no way out of hell and there is no way into heaven except through the cross. It's through the cross that the love of God is expressed. 
It's through the cross that the law of God is satisfied. The wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23. In other words, either we have to die for our own sins or someone else has to die for the sins of us all. The law states that the payment of sin is death. You see that? Sin equals death. Jesus didn't just die on the cross to pardon us for our sins. He died to fulfill that law of God. That Jesus would be the wage of sin. Jesus would be the payment of sin. One pastor put it, I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. Now, I would hate it for the sermon to be just a typical Easter sermon with no call for change. No, the verses that we read calls us to do something in our worship to the risen king. Paul says that through the cross, the world has been crucified to me. What did the world do to Jesus? The world crucified Jesus. We as believers in Christ must now, get this, crucify the world from us. We need to understand that as a child of God, we are no longer children of the world. We must now know that the world has nothing to offer us. You know that? Hear me out. Everything under the sun here in this world has nothing to offer you. Nothing. Marriage? No. Children? No, not even. Finances, luxury, power, fame, pleasures? No. Nothing. You can't crucify yourself. You can shoot yourself, you can stab yourself, you can drown yourself, but you can't crucify yourself. Why? Crucifixion is something that you must surrender yourself to. Today, we are called not just to adore and celebrate the risen king and say, oh, I feel great. Yes, thank you for the resurrection, and go back and start picking our colorful pastel eggs outside. No. Today, we're called to surrender to the glory of the cross. By dying to the cross. We must surrender to Jesus as the risen king and resist the ways of the world. That's how you worship God. That's how you know you're following God. When you say, world, enough of you. You've got nothing for me. Crucifixion is something you must surrender yourself to. We are called to deny ourselves and pick up that cross. And brothers and sisters, whatever that you are going through in your life right now, the difficulties, the suffering, the hardships, that is your cross. Be bold, be strong, persevere, and pick it up. And walk. Because you know that Christ picked it up for you. May our own boast be that we should only glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, ever since Calvary, Satan has been defeated. And he's been sailing a sinking ship. And sometimes I, when I feel bad about myself, I just think of Satan and I feel better. I just see him comedically just trying to bail water out of his ship. And he's like, oh, I'm going to get you. He's going down, and he knows it. 
but he'll do anything and everything he can to take you down with him. You anchor yourself to the world, you're going down with him. We need to anchor ourselves upon the reality of the resurrection on this Easter day. And that is by anchoring ourselves upon that old rugged cross. Brothers and sisters, we're not hearing the end of a story here. Today you are listening to the beginning of your life. It is because of this day 2,000 years ago that Jesus who lived and died and rose from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins has given us a new life. Hallelujah. A new purpose. A new everything. Because of today, our true lives have now begun. Why? Because the tomb is empty. Because he is risen. Because he is God. The one true God. I want to encourage you all and challenge you all this afternoon as we come near to the end of our service to not just hear with your ears but would you hear with your heart would you hear what the spirit is saying to you and and my goodness I'm, I'm sure there are there's a moment that's going on there's a battle that's going on in your heart and your mind where you're thinking no I'm fine I'm fine I'm fine I'm fine and this has nothing to do with about giving you guys a guilt trip. This is about reality. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, friends, we need God. We don't have it together. We need to be restored. If you don't have God, you desperately need to be reconciled to him. Would you take a moment to reflect on what you've heard today? Just quietly meditate upon the still, small, gentle voice of God as he speaks to you. Would you expose yourself to God right now through repentance and confession? Let's go before God right now in prayer. Let's pray. And as the Lord had instructed his disciples of the Lord's Supper, we too Today we'll take part in it to remember, to evaluate, to worship. You see, sometimes we ask, what is the purpose of these traditions? It does not save you. You taking this piece of bread and drinking this juice does not save you. Baptism does not save you, no. These things, the Lord's Supper, we're simply responding. God, that you would do this for me, that you shed your blood for me, that your body was beaten and broken for me. This Lord's Supper is a invaluable time for us to check ourselves and see where we stand before God. Are we carelessly and just flippantly taking this on, taking a relationship with God as if it's no big deal? Or is there a heaviness? Is there a seriousness? Is it real between you and him? Maybe that's the question we need to ask ourselves today.
No more Christian nominalism. There was nothing nominal about what Christ taught his people. It was either for him completely or not. There's a reason why for so long Christians were called radicals. I want to give you an opportunity before you take communion, communion for those who profess faith in Christ Jesus, Lord and Savior. Communion is for a time for people, family of God, children of God, where you believe that Jesus died for you and three days later rose from the dead and right now stands at the right hand of God interceding on your behalf, waiting for the day that he gets to see you face to face. If you believe that, then please join me and celebrate the great victory that happened 2,000 years ago this very day. But before you do, the Lord, he calls us to make sure that we do so with a right heart, that we would do so with godly sorrow because though we are able to take great joy and freedom in this right now, that know that it was dearly cost the Son of God. Please bow with me. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for this powerful truth, this powerful teaching, how these physical objects signify something so deep, something so profound, and something that was so real for Jesus. You died for us. And as hard as it is for us to stomach and perhaps even grasp that, God, this is not the end. Because what you say at the end of, of your instructions to your disciples and what you say at the end of your instructions for us concerning the Lord's Supper is that one day you'll come back and we'll drink it anew with you. We thank you, God, that Friday wasn't the last day, but there was a Sunday, and Lord, there will be a Sunday too again, where you'll come back, and Father, you will bring all the restoration, you will bring all the peace, you will bring all the reconciliation, Father, you will bring yourself, you will bring your kingdom. And we can't wait for that day. But until that day comes, Father, would you give us, as you have charged us to, to continue living for your glory and to share of your great gospel message to anyone and everyone who's willing to hear. So they too will be included in this, God. Lord, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for your great truth and for the sacrifice, the death, 
But Lord, we thank you for the life. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Please join me.